The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here you will find the unpredictability of old school paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. The dice determine all. According to lore, the tale of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. In chapter 27, the party began the long journey to the Arleguar, where Harl has promised to deliver Ursuleth safely. They decided to leave the mountain range and travel along its edge, adding distance, but hopefully saving on time. Really, there wasn't much choice. They lacked the food, water, and other traveling supplies to do it any other way. The first leg of their journey went extremely well. Even the bad weather helped their cause. One might have been forgiven for thinking that they were being guided by a celestial hand. In just three days, they reached the foothills of the Kazmirioth, which they expected to be more forgiving terrain. Along these three days' journey, Harl and Ursuleth told the story of the destruction of the Agogen, the greatest of the dwarven fortresses in the Age of Champions. They also described the three heroes of the Age, Mykeely Blacknail, Azobel and Axeclanger, and Varen Elamor, along with their nemesis, the great dragon, Nerenumenex. Harl concluded by explaining how Blacknail had driven off the worm when he knocked out one of the beast's fangs. Not far behind the party, Anatar Ironskin and his band of dwarves continued their pursuit. If it were not for Harl's leadership, they might have been overtaken, but as it happened, their pursuers were still a full day behind them. Between the Lines The party has completed the first leg of their journey and, to be honest, it could not have been more successful given the circumstances. They've covered 50 miles over difficult terrain so far, of a possible three to five days, the party did it in three. That's some remarkable pathfinding on Harl's part. I wonder if he'll be able to keep it up. Well, the foothills will be much easier to navigate than the mountains, but there's twice as much ground to cover in this middle part of their journey, roughly 100 miles to reach the final leg. I'll need to recalculate a base travel time. I think the differential between possible longest and shortest times will be smaller, as there are far fewer ways to get lost here, and far, far fewer natural barriers that need to be overcome. I'll say they can cover the distance in, hmm, what's realistic, eight to 10 days. I'll roll a d6. On a one or a two, the base travel time will be eight days. On a three or four, it will be nine. On a five or six, it will be 10. I've rolled a five, so that indicates a base travel time of 10 days. Well, the good luck couldn't last forever. As I say, this number is just a base, likely a minimum number of travel days. There are other factors at play. The party members need food and water. 
the BX rules for foraging and hunting are simple and clear, so I'm going to use them as written. The rules say a group can forage with a 1 in 3 chance of success by moving at two-thirds of their speed. They can also opt to stop completely and get a 100% chance of finding enough food to eat for the day. In addition, a day spent without moving includes a 1 in 4 chance to hunt additional food, which can be saved. The party is currently out of food, but they do have enough water to last everyone two days. The map I'm using is posted on taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com, by the way. It's an incomplete map, just detailed enough to make playing this part of the story possible. If you do check it out, you'll notice a water source in their path to the east that the party will almost inevitably come across if they can cover the next 70 miles or so. Other than that, I'll be making up the rest on the fly, depending on what the dice show. And speaking of dice, as we enter the second leg of our journey, I have three rolls to make. Here's the weather. A four. Looks like those rains are back. Stumble upon. A ten. That's nothing. Wandering encounter. Oh, look at this. A six. Well, well, well. That is a bingo. I've made a new wandering encounter chart to reflect the new terrain, and I'll post that up on the blog too. It looks like I'll need to make one more roll. Okay, rolling 2d8 on my new table. Here's the roll. A five. Let's see. Wow. Well, well, this will require a little thought. Chapter 28, Part 1, Day 29, Morning. Elevation, 4,500 feet above sea level. Party status, Harl, 16 of 16 hit points. Eridine, 12 of 12. Kyrios, 21 of 21. Umura, 13 of 13. Ursuleth, 4 of 4. Spells available. Umura has memorized Shield, Light, and Levitate. Kyrios has prayed for Purify Food and Drink and Cure Light Wounds. Once his devotions were finished and the great golden disk of Mazagar's gift had cleared the horizon completely, Kyrios roused his sleeping companions and the group drowsily struck their basic camp. As they circumnavigated the last mountain proper and crested the first of the foothills, they were treated to a magnificent sight that lifted every heart and filled them with wonder. From their elevation, they could make out the distant, shining, shimmering blue ribbon of the sea far to the south. It stretched across the landscape like an endless chain of little winking sapphires. But the vision did not last long. The wind began to pick up and brought with it slate-colored clouds from the west. A great shadow was draped like a cloak over the foothills of the Kazmirioth. And then the inevitable rain came, not as hard as it had the last time, but in a steady drizzle. Once again, the party members took the chance to drink all the water they carried and fill the empty skins by whatever means they could devise. Gyrios held his helm in both hands like a bowl as he walked, letting the cool drops splash his bare scalp, whereas Eridine had pulled up the hood of the cloak Valiador had given her and walked with a hunch. She recognized melancholy at the edges of her emotions and found herself wondering what had become of the High Forge's seneschal. He had not been present at the dinner and so might have organized some kind of defensive or retaliatory force. Or else, perhaps it was better not to think about it. Harl kept to himself, muttering about supplies and distance, calculating time and travel speed on his fingers. He knew that they would need to slow their pace to forge or hunt. 
He did not know the features of this part of the mountain range at all, and worried constantly about leading the party astray. I need to make a quick roll here to determine the success of their foraging attempts later today. After the rains had been falling for an hour or so, the patchy earth of hillside began to emit ghostly mists, reducing their visibility and casting a spell of eerie tranquility over the land. For no good reason, the companions started speaking in a whisper. The hushed tones felt somehow more appropriate in this new spirit world. By noon, the ground beneath their feet was more grassy and green than rocky and brownish-gray. There were groves of trees ahead, to the east and to the south. Everyone agreed that it would be wise to keep close to the trees, and so the party detoured south by a few extra miles. Eridine called the party to a halt shortly after reaching the shelter of the trees. In her hushed and husky voice, she told them she recognized some of the plants growing in the underbrush. The plants were knee-high, topped with small, spherical, and spiky burrs, the kind that stick annoyingly to your clothing and is usually avoided by travelers. This was burdock root, she whispered, gently and firmly pulling one of the plants from the earth, and it had edible roots. Eaten raw, burdock had a vaguely artichoke-like flavor. When Umura asked how she had known about the plant, Eridine shrugged and said her mentor, Machi Swin, had taught her a thousand things of that sort, and, after all, they had lived in the woods quite comfortably for ages. The companions spent some time collecting what they could and then moved a few hundred yards into the concealing cover of the trees where it was drier. Eridine mentioned that the roots tasted better roasted, but Harl said he doubted that they would be able to find dry kindling and that they were not too bad uncooked anyway. Not wanting to go back, under the open sky, where the wind and the rain could get at them so freely, the party extended their break, and so what was meant to be a short rest stretched long into the afternoon. Harl was reclining on the leafy ground, half-napping and using a rock as a pillow when he suddenly heard a sound over the patter of the rain in the treetops. He had just enough time to register it as the sound of something, or some things, sprinting in his direction full tilt, when a small shape burst through the foliage and hurtled straight toward him. A second later, a second and much bigger shape followed. My Wandering Encounter Table contains the usual monsters and other adversaries, but also contains a few entries that indicate special encounters, including unique locations and findings. The entry for a dice roll of five reads as follows. Special NPC or NPCs. For example, a ranger, hermit, wizard, or others. And that's what I've rolled. My first inclination was to make this a combat encounter, partly because I haven't had a proper combat sequence since episode 23, and I'm a big believer in D&D maintaining a balance between exploration, character building, and combat, but I'm an even bigger believer in following the dictates of the dice, and they are telling me with this role that a combat is not necessarily about to take place. It might, but it could go an entirely different way, too. I'm going to indulge the gods of chaos in this episode and make this wandering encounter truly random. By the way, in case anyone is wondering how I knew how to end the last segment before working out the details of the encounter, the answer is simple. I played these two sequences in reverse order, so what you're hearing now actually happened first in-game. Okay, let's find out what's going to happen. Or what has happened. Well, you know what I mean. My first role will be to determine the size of the NPC group on a die 8. 1 to 3 will be a single NPC, 4 to 6 a small group, 7 small community, and 8 a large community. The role. A 1. Next up is gender. I'll use the same d8. 1 to 4, male. 5 to 8, female. Another 1. Male. What race is this person? Same die. It seems to have a story to tell. 1 to 6, it's a human. 7, an elf. 
Eight. A halfling. The roll. A seven. Wow. You know, I can't help but wonder how many people listening to this might be thinking I've rigged this result, but there has never been, or will there ever be, a fudge roll on this show. Never. It would ruin the whole experiment. An elf, it is. Okay, what's next? I thought about rolling for alignment, but to be honest, I've never really appreciated that system of labeling. Instead, I'm going to roll to see what our elf is doing. An elf alone in the foothills must be doing something, right? A d6 this time. On a 1 to 2, he's running away from something. On a 3 to 4, he's hiding. On a 5 to 6, he's seeking or moving towards a goal. A 2, I see. Okay, the story is starting to come together now, and I think I have enough to go on to get a start. I just need to roll against my encounter list again to answer the question, what is he running from? The roll. A seven. Chapter 28, part two, day 29, afternoon. Elevation, 3,500 feet above sea level. Party status. The party status is unchanged. Harl turned toward the sound and lifted his head free from the boulder upon which it rested. He didn't even have time to pull up his knees before the figure burst through the trees. It was a small shape, and at first Harl took it to be a human girl child, but in the split second it took for the figure to reach him, he could see that the features were not youthful, nor were they female. Whatever it was, it was running straight at him. A look of surprise broke over the being's face as it apprehended the members of the party and the dwarf in its path. Harl also noticed that it wore an ugly wound on its chest. A brief moment after the first figure appeared, there came a second. This figure was very different from the first. It was humanoid, maybe seven feet tall, covered in dark, matted hair, not quite fur, and it ran with an awkward loping gait like a wolf's. Its face might have belonged to a goblin, but this was no goblin. Bigger than Vashuk, and with features more grotesquely exaggerated, this was some kind of giant goblin kin. It had wild, yellow eyes, long, pointed, and drooping ears, and a mouthful of small yellow fangs. Like the figure it chased, it was wounded also in the chest, between mismatched pieces of armor that looked like they had been salvaged from different sets. In its left hand, it carried a rusty morning star. When it broke through the brush and beheld the party, it faltered hesitating, trying to figure out if it had been drawn into a trap. Its prey did not slow down at all and sprung into the air, trying to leap over Harl's body without breaking stride. Huh. Round one. I need to roll to see if either group is surprised. This requires three rolls. A 1 to 2 on a d6 indicates surprise. The party. A 4. The elf. A 1. Bugbear. A 4. The elf, taken by surprise, has no chance to time his leap and runs headlong into Harl, crashing into him. <coughs> elf and dwarf go tumbling across the wet leafy ground in a heap. They'll be unable to act this round. For the rest, it's initiative. The party. A 2. The bugbear. A three. Bugbears may not be smart, but they are cunning. This one realizes that, even if this is not an ambush, he's outnumbered by people with weapons and armor. I'll roll against his morale. He'll need to get a nine or lower to stay in the fight. The seven. The bugbear is apprehensive at first, but then he sees Ursulith 
who is barely more than a child, and a smile crosses his ugly face. <laughs> Looks like dwarf and man meat are on the menu, too. He raises his morning star. He'll ignore the weaker opponents for now, and attack the one who presents the greatest immediate threat to him. That would be Gyrios. Gyrios has an AC of 3, so the bugbear needs a 13 to hit him. The roll. A 1. Crit fail. The Morningstar swings in a deadly arc towards Gyrios, who ducks in the nick of time. The spiked ball and hits the tree trunk beside him with a mighty thwack. Bark and splinters rain down on Gyrios' bald head. The bugbear grunts his frustration and tugs at the weapon, but it is stuck. The Morningstar's spikes have become lodged in the tree. The party can now respond. Gyrios looks wide-eyed at the creature in front of him and claps his helmet, still partly filled with rainwater, over his head. He swings his flail in a desperate backhand. He needs a 14 or better to hit. 17. The ball end whips diagonally up and across. 5 damage and strikes the creature hard across the ribs. The bugbear grunts in pain. It has just 4 hit points left. Remember, it was wounded to begin with. Eridine is next. Her short sword is out and she stabs forward. A 14 is just enough. A 5 for damage. Her sword point pushes right through a layer of rusty chainmail and into the beast's heart. It dies where it stands, pulling Eridine's sword from her grip as it falls face forward. The creature's own weight drives the tip of the sword clean through its back. For a minute, hard breathing and rain in the canopy are the only sounds. Then, as one, everyone looks at the stranger who is just now rising to his feet. Harl gets up too, brushing wet leaves off his armor and looking quizzically at the elf who stares back apprehensively. The weird standoff might have gone on for some time, but as soon as the elf is upright, he convulses in pain and grabs his chest, wincing. There's no weapon in his hand, but Harl notices a pair of long knives in his belt, one of them smeared with blood, and a shortbow slung over his back. Harl, feeling nervous, shows his empty hands in a gesture of goodwill. Gyrios, Eridine, lower your weapons, he says, without breaking eye contact with the elf. Hello, friend. It seems you are in need of some aid, he continues. The elf does not reply, but backs up slowly, eyes slitted. Our healer can tend to that wound. You should let him take a look. The elf stumbles. Blood is coming freely from the wound and blooming across his rain-soaked clothing. Harl notices the glint of metal behind the fabric of the elf's tunic. Perhaps I can mend your armor as well. The elf takes another step back and then faints dead away. Everybody. We're Waffles Maple Syrup, and we play Pathfinder 2E and all sorts of different TTRPGs. You're about to listen to our time travel homebrew campaign called Time Has Passed. Check it out! Doldren just comes charging up this way towards where uh, L ran off to, and sees that rune still there, and Tanigal attacking uh, L and be like, I said the rune! As he just mm. turns, charges at it, and I again, just jumps, leaps, and swings with them all. Why would anybody want to be a human? That's stupid. If... Most people don't get a choice. I mean, but we did. <laughs> 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 oh, <my God. laughs> 
That's a lot of damage! I have no weapons aside from my body. Oh dear. <laughs> oh my. <laughs> uh, oh my. You see this humanoid shape enclosed in a white robe form in the void of your dreams. As we zoom into where his face should be, there is nothing but blackness. The blackness that leaks from his hood begins to enshroud your mind, wrapping around you in this space. I need all of you to make a will saving throw. And if you like what you just heard, search Waffles Maple Syrup, one word, and give us a subscribe. Thanks! Dramatis Personae, Ursuleth. Ursuleth Stonecarver is a 16-year-old dwarf, previously of the High Forge in the part of Merith now inaccurately named the Skundramoir, or Windless Rise. She stands 3 foot 9 inches tall and weighs approximately 120 pounds. Her build is stocky, with exaggerated hips, waist, and bust. Like her great-grandmother, Ursuleth has a sweet face, some would say cherubic, with a button nose. Other similarities include her long yellow hair, worn in the same fashion, a single braid tied up with gold thread. Her eyes are a deep, warm brown. Ursuleth's personality is not fully developed. As with many adolescents, she's still finding out who she really is and what she values. She's not overly courageous, though she is able to suppress her feelings over long periods. Lately, she's found it difficult to maintain her emotional dam and feels as though she's coming apart inside. She loves her great-grandmother more than anything in the world, and is currently dealing with a great deal of anxiety over that woman's fate. Seeing Anelian's head tossed on the steps to the throne room is the most horrific thing she's ever witnessed, and is an image she will carry to her grave. Ursuleth is fond of Harl, but since her cousin has been absent from Dwarvar for so much of the recent past, she has not formed a deep bond with him. Still, she clings to him now, as though he were her sole lifeline. Ursuleth has spent her whole life being educated in the skills of courtship. She can sing beautifully in Old Dwarvish and in Modern. She can play several instruments, including the flute, drum, and a dwarven stringed instrument called a defji. She has moderate skill with weaving, painting, and dance as well. BXD&D uses race as class. So far in Tale of the Manticore, at least where dwarves are concerned, I've been somewhat liberal with this concept, and I have introduced dwarven clerics, the solemn into the mix. If Ursulith were to be given a class, the most fitting would be the Bard class. If she had a level, it would be zero. BX doesn't use level zero, nor does it include Bards, so what to do? If I ended up rolling her stats, I would do so normally and then apply penalties across the board, including to her hit points, to represent the idea that she's not fully matured physically or mentally. I think what I'm getting at here is that I plan to keep Ursulith as an NPC. She won't mature for a couple of years yet, if, somehow, the story ever gets to the two-game-year point, and if Ursuleth is still alive, then she could be considered as a candidate, but until then, she must remain an NPC. Chapter 28 Part 3 Day 29 Late Afternoon Elevation 3,500 feet above sea level. Party status. The party status is unchanged, except for Gyrios, who
who has used his spell of curing on the unconscious elf. Of the five of them, only Umura had ever seen a real elf before. Although they were uncommon where she was from, they were known to mingle with some members of the Great Zation houses. Harl and Ursuleth had only ever seen elves in paintings and drawings, while Gyrios and Erdine had just heard of them in stories. Erdine found that she was somehow disturbed by the look of the creature. Disturbed and, if she was being honest, disappointed. She had never expected to meet an elf in her lifetime, but had she been asked to imagine such a meeting, she would have described a creature of unrivaled grace, beauty, and delicacy. The thing that lay on the ground beside them, with its knees drawn up towards its chest, was not indelicate, but it was far from lovely. It had pinched and stretched features, over-large eyes, and the unsettling paradox of a severe adult face mapped onto that of a child's. The elf's hair was long and flax-colored, even when wet. Its fingers were disproportionately slender. Eridine had had a close look. She'd helped Gyrios to clean the wound, after the priest had said a prayer of healing over the sleeping form. While she and Gyrios had been thus occupied, Umura had searched the body of the slain bugbear. Harl had needed to attend to Ursuleth, who, having spent her whole life in relative comfort and safety, now started to become undone after this second deadly threat in just four days. What was that thing? I'm frightened, Cousin Harl. There, there, Ursuleth, soothed the older dwarf. I'll not let any harm come to you. I swear on it. The bugbear had carried a rusty morning star, which still stuck out at a 90 degree angle from the tree in which it was lodged. The weapon did not appear to be of any use to them, so Umura left it where it was. Its armor was likewise useless. The only item of interest to the magic user was a small belt pouch tucked into the bugbear's girdle. In it, Umura found a handful of coins, nine gold pieces, twelve silver, and twenty-one copper. She took it all, including the pouch, although it smelled like wet dog. She also retrieved Eridine's sword with considerable difficulty, and returned it to the rogue when she returned to report her findings. Eridine had just croaked out, Thank you. When the elf's eyes fluttered open and it blinked several times. Ah, uh, Aruta, Nandazo Sindur, Nandazo Ima, Buspain Hildo Aldazo, Oh, Eskeri Ako Thresendiari, Nirezaria Sindata. As it spoke, babbling unintelligibly in its own language, it looked all around, then at the fallen bugbear, and finally at each party member in turn. Its left hand gripped some unseen thing tightly. Although the face was alien, its expressions were familiar enough. They could easily see panic, turning to relief, and then surprise, as the elf's strange fingers probed the spot on its chest where a deep cut had been not long before. I need to make a reaction roll before proceeding any further. This roll will completely determine what happens next in our story. A reaction roll is made using 2d6. The higher the result, the better. The worst roll, a 2, indicates immediate attack, whereas a 12 means enthusiastic friendship. Considering all the mixed charisma bonuses and penalties of the party members, and the circumstances of their meeting, I'll add plus 2 to my roll. This is to account for the party killing the elf's enemy, and for Gyrios having healed him. Here's my roll. A 9. Adjusted, that's an 11. Hey, it's a very good roll. But what does the basic rulebook say? Hmm. Seems my plus two had no effect. It says, for a roll of 9 to 11, quote, no attack. Monster leaves or considers options, end quote. Okay, that's what we go with then.
The elf was quiet for a moment, and then, when it spoke again, it used the common tongue. Strangers have helped Sindur. Sindur owes a debt. Is that your name? Ventured Umora. Sindur? The other nodded. How long? He wanted to know. Almost two hours. Not so very long. I am Umura, and these are my friends. Gyrios here healed your wound. It is our pleasure to meet you, Amphili. Umura did not know the elven language, but she knew the honorific to use when meeting someone for the first time. How is your wound, Amphili Sindur? Once again, the other touched his chest and once again nodded, indicating that he was well. Umura took a step closer, trying to appear non-threatening. How did it come to pass that you were being chased by that creature and alone in these hills? Do you live nearby? The elf appeared to consider its reply before giving it. Sindur's home is a two-day walk from here. The elder where Sindur is from had a vision. Some abomination has come and draws too near our home. Sindur was sent to see what it is. The elf made a sweeping gesture with his hand. To travel far, go together. To travel fast, go alone. An old saying. Your community elder is a kind of seer then, is that right? Could she not have seen this evil thing as well? Umura indicated the dead bugbear. It came close to taking your life. When she finished speaking, the rain tapered off and then stopped altogether. Too late, Gyrios took off his helmet and held it upside down, looking hopefully towards the clouds. Foolish, he chided himself. He got up to collect whatever rainwater he could by shaking leaves and bushes into the helm. The elf continued as though there had been no interruption and pointed at the ugly corpse. Evil things like this are as common as stars in the sky. This other thing is an abomination. Stranger can understand the difference? When she nodded, he went on. The Elder is connected to the lands. The Elder has visions only rarely, when things that should not be approach Elf territory. Is this Elf territory where we are right now? asked Umora. She looked suddenly concerned. It is not. Therefore worry not. Umphiliumura and her friends cannot enter into Elf territory by accident. Sindur and others would not allow it. It is forbidden. Yes. Yes, of course, said Umura, nodding. The elf rose to his feet and briefly checked his weapons. Satisfied, he gave a shallow bow and said, Sindur must go now. But it is almost night, reasoned Gyrios, who was standing not far off. Surely you would prefer to stay with us until morning. Gyrios did not see the suppressed look of alarm in Harl's eyes at his offer. No, Emphiri Gyrios has Sindur's thanks, but Sindur must go. Sindur has not yet completed the Elder's task. But Sindur is in these strangers' debt. Is there anything these strangers might have from Sindur? The elf waited patiently, but nobody spoke. Well, Sindur can give advices. Do not tarry here, and do not go south. Elves will turn these strangers back if these strangers try. Do not go north, for that is Sindur's path. If these strangers have a ward against things of evil or unlife, these strangers should use it. Now, is there truly nothing these strangers need? I'm hungry, Cousin Harl, said Ursulith, giving voice to what all of them were thinking. Harl cleared his throat. <clears throat> we do need something, Master Elf, but it does not appear that you will be able to help us in this regard. We need food and water, but as I say, it appears you have neither. 
Wordlessly, the elf lifted his tunic, revealing an ultra-thin male shirt beneath, and a waterskin shaped to fit the contours of his body. It had been invisible under his clothes. The elf unbuckled it and handed it to Harl. Head east. Strangers will find a river in two days. Along the banks, gather snails, also brown-shelled turtles. These will be hard to see if strangers are not looking for them. Be ever free as the wind. Cinder then gave another quick bow, and without another word, he turned and was gone, lost in the darkening foliage, silent and invisible in a matter of seconds. Thank you for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you've enjoyed the show and would like to lend your support, please consider spreading the word on social media or leaving a review on the podcatcher of your choice. This episode ran a bit longer than my usual one, so I'm going to keep this sign-off very brief. But I can't do that without first thanking my voice actors, Kirsty Wilson playing Ursuleth Stonecarver and Meliora Henning, who agreed to take on the challenging role of Cinder the Elf and delivered it with style. Reach out to her at Meliora Henning on Twitter. The adventure will continue on the next episode of Tale of the Manticore, the story where chaos rolls.